Good morning, church. Welcome to week four of our summer series through the Ten Commandments that we are calling Law School. Today we're going to be looking specifically at the fourth commandment. So I think it'd be a good idea just to begin by reading it to you as God originally spoke it to Moses. This comes from Exodus chapter 20. This is the fourth commandment. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is, in, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So I think it's pretty clear the fourth commandment is all about this idea of Sabbath which probably brings a couple of questions to most people's minds, especially if you're not Jewish or if you didn't grow up in like very traditional Christian culture. And those questions are, what is the Sabbath and what in the world does it have to do with my life? Which are great questions. So let me answer them for you. Let's start with just a definition. The word Sabbath or Shabbat in Hebrew, it comes from a Hebrew verb that literally means to sit still, to stop and rest from your labor. And that's exactly, of course, what the fourth commandment Commands. Before Jesus came on the scene, God required his special people, the nation of Israel, to set apart an entire 24 hour, hours excuse me, on Saturday as a sacred day of rest for everybody in the nation. And if you were listening, you heard even animals had to rest on this day. So it's actually a pretty simple, straightforward command. But when you, when you zoom out and kind of look at it in its larger context, you'll notice that it's actually a pretty unique command. The first reason it's unique is out of all the Ten Commandments, it is the longest. It is the wordiest of the commandments. The second reason it's unique is out of all the Ten Commandments, it's the only one that that isn't really concerned with what we might call a moral right or wrong. It's more what we might call a spiritual discipline, like, like prayer or Bible reading. This is like a regular habitual practice meant to help God's people be healthy and whole. So when you look at it with that frame of reference and see how unique it is in in those two respects, I think it's fair to say that this is an important command. Sabbath is important. It's the longest command. It's the only spiritual discipline. But there's a third thing here that makes it unique. Out of all the Ten Commandments, it's the only one that's not reiterated in the New Testament to be practiced in exactly the same way as people in the Old Testament practiced it. Let me, let me explain that because that may sound odd to some of you. If you read through the book of Acts, which, which is like a history of the early Christian movement, and then you read through some of Paul's letters where he's writing to these early churches, it becomes very clear early on in this new Christian movement that Sunday, which was the day the Lord rose from the dead, Sunday was becoming the most important day of the week and not Saturday, not the seventh day anymore. But even though that's the case, there's really no evidence across the New Testament or early church history that they treated Sunday as like a new kind of Sabbath day, requiring rest. As a matter of fact, we know from historical sources that believers in the early church, most of them actually had to work on Sundays. So I say all that as a way of introduction to to make this point. Sabbath is important, but it obviously, if we look at the New Testament, it obviously applies to followers of Jesus differently than it did to those original Israelites. And just so you know that I'm not making this up and I'm not trying to lead you astray, let me just quote the Apostle Paul in his letter 
to the New Testament church called the Colossian church. This is from Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17. We'll return to this a little bit later, but let me, let me read it now. He said, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let nobody pass judgment on you for Sabbath keeping. Here's why. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the Sabbath hasn't been totally done away with. It's still important. There is still substance to it. But if we approach it in the same way that those original Israelites did, then it would be like trying to hug someone you love by grasping at their shadow, which is, of course, absurd. The shadow has the shape of a person, but not the substance, not the solid reality of that person. So Paul's point here is the original Sabbath command was, was a shadow meant to point us to something deeper, to the heart behind it. And what he says is that heart ultimately is found in Jesus. So that, that leaves us with one big question, which, which really is the guiding question behind this entire teaching, and it's this. What is the heart of the Sabbath for people who follow Jesus? Naturally, the best person to answer that is Jesus himself. So what we're going to do for the remainder of our time together is, is look at two episodes in Jesus' life that took place on the Sabbath. We're going to unpack what he said there, what he did there, with the goal of discovering the heart of the Sabbath. So let me just go ahead and read these verses to you before we dive in. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 23, and we're going to read through Mark 3, verse 6. Here's what it says. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now chapter 3, starting with verse 1, again... He entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Looking at those two stories about Jesus on the Sabbath, there's really two main ideas I want to draw out from there, and they're going to serve as the outline for the rest of our time together. Number one, we see that Sabbath shows us the need of man. Number two, Sabbath shows us the nature of of God. So let's start with that first idea. Sabbath shows us the need of man. So if you'll remember, our story here begins with Jesus and his disciples walking through someone else's grain field, and his disciples began picking these heads of grain off to eat. Now, we might read that as 21st century Americans and say, well, I immediately see the problem. They are stealing crops from someone else's field. But actually, the Old Testament explicitly allowed them to do that. That was not really the problem here. The problem here, at least in the eyes of these religious leaders called the Pharisees, 
is that Jesus' disciples were doing this on the Sabbath day. They claim, in their words, this is not lawful because by reaching out and picking this head of grain, they are doing labor on the day that the law says should be a day of doing no labor, a day of rest. Now, the truth is, if you read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament really doesn't have a lot to say about exactly what constitutes labor, like what is work, what isn't work, what counts, what doesn't count. And that's why over the years, the religious leaders, who eventually became known as Pharisees, they began to develop this oral tradition. It wasn't written down at first. It was just word of mouth, and it expanded and, in their eyes, explained the law of God. Later, it was written down in a document that you've probably heard of called the Mishnah. And according to that, and this is probably what the Pharisees had in mind, there were 39 different categories of labor forbidden on the Sabbath. And again, just to make the point, none of those were really written in Scripture. They had all been made up by these religious leaders. One of those 39 categories was reaping. So according to the Pharisees, when the disciples reached out their hand and picked this grain by hand, they were reaping which, if you think about it, is really just splitting hairs, right? Or if we're going to go with the theme here, it's being very granular, right? <laughs> Good. The 9 a.m. liked it. I really didn't know how that would go. <laughs> but on a serious note for a second, what, what, what they, they really didn't care about breaking the Sabbath, at least not in this case. What they really cared about was trying to undermine and discredit Jesus. They were looking for any way that he really could just humiliate him and bring him down a notch because they didn't like Jesus. He was too popular, and they were jealous of him. That's what the Scriptures tell us. So what they're basically saying to Jesus is, if you're such a great rabbi, such a great teacher of the law of God that everybody thinks you are, why are you letting your disciples break God's law? And Jesus' response is really just to throw that law, throw those scriptures right back at them to show them that it's them that don't really understand the heart of the law. And that's why in verses 25 through 26, you see Jesus summarizing this Old Testament story where King David actually broke the temple law to feed him and his men who were in need. And the main point Jesus is making by telling that story is found in verse 27. This is really our key verse today for understanding the heart of the Sabbath. Here's what he said. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus' whole point here by telling that story and then saying this verse is the heart of the law is not to place these arbitrary religious rituals over the real needs of God's people. The heart of the law is actually to meet the real needs of God's people, like David and his men who needed food. In the same way, the Sabbath law was meant to be a gift made for mankind to meet their need. That's why you make something for someone. It is a gift to meet their want, to meet their need. The question is, what need is Sabbath meeting? And it's obvious from the very nature of the gift. If Sabbath is a regular and frequent resting, then what mankind needs, the, the reason it's made, is regular and frequent rest from our labors. Sabbath shows us that all people need regular and frequent rest from our labors. Now, if you listen to the first couple of sermons in this series, you might remember that we had a thesis statement behind this entire series, like a, a purpose behind it. And, and if you don't remember, I'm just going to repeat it now. Here's what we said. True freedom is not found in the absence of restrictions, but in the presence of the right restrictions. And the point that Jesus is making here is that true Sabbath rest may at first glance seem like a restriction that's against us, 
but it's really a gift that is made for us. And when we live within that restriction, it will lead to freedom and happiness. But when we try to live outside of it, we will eventually find that the absence of rest destroys us. And you don't even have to believe the Bible to know that that's true. I don't, I don't know if you've seen this in the news recently. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is actually really happening. Apparently, a number of the world's billionaires, including Amazon's Jeff Bezos, are funding studies with the goal of lengthening human life and potentially even figuring out how to stop death. Spoiler alert, haven't figured it out yet. Setting aside all the obvious issues with that, the funny thing is science has already shown us one major way to potentially lengthen human life. In the uh, early to mid-2000s, National Geographic sponsored a man named Dan Bittner to travel the world, and, and what he was doing is studying different groups of people around the world that were living longer than the average person. And one of those groups he studied was right here in the United States, over in California, a religious group, and, and they are all over the United States, but he, he honed in on this one specific one in California, a religious group known as the Seventh-day Adventists, because they were living, on average, about 10 years longer than the average American. So the question he had, and I think the question we all would have, is what are they doing differently? And here's how he summarized it. They take this idea of Sabbath very seriously. So they're decompressing the stress. About 84% of healthcare dollars are spent because of bad food choices, inactivity, and unmanaged stress. And they have these cultural ways of managing stress through their Sabbath. In other words, living under the restriction of rest not only for them led to longer lives, but to happier lives. It led to freedom. Now, I realize that, that one pushback to that might be, okay, Anthony, I will grant that taking these regular breaks for rest will make me probably happier, make me probably live longer, but I just won't be able to get as much done. I won't be as productive. I won't reach all my goals. And that's a very popular sentiment like that. We all very easily fall into that. Our, our culture seems to be increasingly obsessed with making content, being efficient, increasing productivity, and then discovering life hacks to do all those things better so that we can do them more. And it's just this vicious cycle. But again, science is just backing up what Scripture has been teaching us for thousands of years. Let me quote just one more study this morning. 2015, Stanford University published a study that found once you worked a certain number of hours, in this case they said it was about 50 hours, once you worked a certain number of hours, productivity actually didn't rise anymore, it began to fall. And one researcher summed up the obvious by saying this, the simple reality is that work, both mental and physical, results in fatigue that limits the cognitive and bodily resources that people have to put towards their work. Let me put that in layman's terms. Work leads to exhaustion, and exhausted people aren't productive. You know what exhausted people need? Rest. Rest is what will make us truly productive. In other words, the, the restriction of rest is what leads to freedom. So I think I've made my point. You need rest. God wants you to rest. It's His gift to you. You would think that there would be no easier commandment to obey, right? It, it would be like a school telling you to stay at home. It's a snow day, or your boss saying, like, take a day off. You don't have to tell me twice, right? But God does have to tell us twice, and thrice, and over, and over, and over again. That's why when He gave the fourth commandment to the Israelites originally, He didn't start by saying, keep the Sabbath. He started by saying, remember the Sabbath, because we so easily and so naturally 
forget it. As counterintuitive as it sounds, we resist true rest. Or if we don't resist it, we have this habit of turning the gift of rest into a curse. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing in our story here. That's why in verse 27, Jesus doesn't just say the Sabbath was made for man. He chases that with not man for the Sabbath. Because the Pharisees, instead of teaching people to view Sabbath as this gift meant to relieve you of burdens, they had cultivated all these unbiblical attitudes that that made people view it as just one more burden that they could never really shoulder. Instead of bringing rest, the Sabbath was leading them to exhaustion. And most of us, if we're left to our own devices, naturally fall into one of those two traps. Let me explain what I mean by that. On one hand, some of us do admit, we recognize we need rest. We need it regularly. We need it frequently. But we forget it. We push it out of our minds. We resist it. We, we just keep working, telling ourselves, I can't get behind on that. Or I'll just, I'll just finish this one more project, and then I'll take a break. Or, or what we might do is we actually do take some time off, but then we fill it with things that we know aren't really restful in the best sense of the word. Netflix binges, house chores, soccer practices, shopping sprees, social media scrolls. We could keep going and going. The point of all those things, not that they are inherently bad, but that so often they don't really bring rest. That's the first trap. We, we resist rest. The second trap, remember, is to take the gift and turn it into a curse. If you fall into this trap, you may actually set aside time for rest, but you you end up setting up so many rigid rules and limits that you and the people around you ultimately don't feel rested. You just feel frustrated, anxious, and bored. And, And probably the easiest and maybe the most extreme example of this would be the way that entire communities decades ago used to treat Sundays especially in the South. I grew up in the South, so I grew up with a little bit of this leftover attitude. And it wasn't, it wasn't always bad, but there are some extreme examples here. Let me, let me just read you. One gentleman wrote a, a news article in his local paper in 1927 where he was remembering his childhood in Greenville, South Carolina. And here's how he described Sundays. Sundays are days on which you were not allowed to play games like hide-and-seek or marbles. You weren't allowed to read books except the Bible or sermons. And you weren't allowed to play the piano or sing or even take a bath. And he summed it up this way. This, this, this hurts. Listen to this. It seemed that good people were doing their level best to make Sunday the drabbest day of the week. Ouch, right? And notice he says good people were doing this. He didn't think they were bad people. They were trying to find rest as God had told them they needed rest, and yet they had set up all these rigid restrictions that weren't really biblical, and so instead of it being a gift, it was a curse. So now the question should be, how can we actually not resist rest but enjoy it as a gift without turning it into a curse? What is the heart of Sabbath rest that God really wants for us? And again, of course... The best person to answer this is the person who calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the master of rest. So what we're going to ask now is what did he do on his Sabbath days that we can learn from? And I want to just highlight two things from the two stories that I read to you earlier that I think will be especially helpful for us in this time, in this culture that we live in. So here's the first lesson we can learn from Jesus about the true heart of Sabbath rest. Listen to verse 23 again. 
One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So let's look at this from a different angle than what we've already looked at it from. One of the extra rules that the Pharisees had created about the Sabbath was to actually put a limit on how far you could travel on the Sabbath day. That's why in the New Testament you will sometimes read about a Sabbath day's journey. So, so think about what we see here. Since the Pharisees don't complain about Jesus and his disciples breaking that rule, which you know they would have, that must mean that Jesus and his disciples weren't traveling very far on this Sabbath day. In other words, we don't know where they were going, we don't know exactly what they were doing, but it's very likely that they were taking a leisurely Saturday stroll with their rabbi. Not only that, but Jesus doesn't command them to refrain from plucking some grain to satisfy their hunger, to enjoy a snack. He actually allows them to do that. And so, so the picture, if you look at this as a big picture, what we're getting here is, is not a picture of being in a hurry. It's not a picture of denying comforts and pleasures. It's a picture of refreshment, joy, and satisfaction. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Old Testament, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God reminds his people to call the Sabbath a delight, a delight. So that's the first lesson we can glean from Jesus here about true rest. True rest brings satisfaction and delight. Second lesson. In order to see this, we've got to turn our attention now to that second episode. I read it at the beginning of this time together, and now we're going to go ahead and look at it in Mark chapter 3. So after Jesus has this run-in with the Pharisees on the, in the grain field on the Sabbath, which, by the way, think about this for a second. Who hangs out in a grain field like waiting for people to break the Sabbath. Right? Obviously, the Pharisees do. They're grumpy people. If, I, if, if they were like my two-year-old, I would call them grumpalumps. That's who the Pharisees are, just waiting for people to break the rules. So, so after that, we immediately get Mark telling us another Sabbath-related story. But this time, Jesus and his disciples, they aren't outside eating grain. They're inside of a Jewish place of worship, a synagogue. And Jesus decides to heal this man with a disfigured hand. And just like in the previous story, the Pharisees are there, so you know there's trouble coming. And according to verse 2, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So here we go. Here's another one of those added to the Bible rules about Sabbath. According to the Pharisees, people could only be healed on the Sabbath if their life was in danger. Now think about that for a second. They weren't, they weren't upset or in awe that Jesus could miraculously heal this man, they were just worried that he was going to do it on the wrong day of the week. And what that means is that Jesus could have avoided this entire controversy if he had just waited to heal the man tomorrow. But Jesus didn't want to avoid the confrontation. He wanted to make a point. And here's the point he's making in chapter 3, verse 4. And he said to them, he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And the reason they were silent is because the answer to this rhetorical question is obvious. Of course it is lawful to do good and to save life on the Sabbath. Of course this man should be healed on the Sabbath because that's exactly what Jesus goes on to do. And this story is not just a one-off. If, if you read through all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the main things they show Jesus doing on the Sabbath is healing people. Jesus used Sabbath to bring healing. And therefore, here's our, here's our second lesson we can draw from this. I think it's fair to say that true rest 
brings healing and restoration, not just for yourself, but for the people around you too. And of course, this doesn't mean, listen, we, we may or may not need healing from a disease, but we all know that we need regular healing from the disappointments and the stresses and the pains of everyday life. And we all need our energy restored so that we can keep living and keep working with purpose and with joy. So now, let's take both of those things in mind for a second. True rest brings satisfaction and delight. It brings healing and restoration. With both of those things in mind, the million-dollar question, of course, is, how can we actually practice this regularly and frequently in the world we live in today? And of course, there are as many answers to that question as there are people in this room, because that's going to look way different depending on your age, your marital status, whether or not you have kids, what your work schedule's like. There is no one answer to that question. Here's what I'm going to do, though, to just venture an answer. I want to first give you a piece of practical advice that I think will apply to everybody, and then I want to leave you with a story, an illustration of of a man who's actually practiced this in his life, and maybe that can inspire you. So let's start with this piece of practical advice. You may not be able at this point in your life to set aside an entire 24 hours every week to practice this kind of rest, at least not at first, because that way of living is a huge adjustment in this world marked by hurry and hustle. But what we all need to realize is that resting like this is not ever going to happen just on its own. You have to be intentional about it. You have to plan for it. That's why the Jews actually had a day of preparation for the Sabbath. They had to prepare to rest. You had to work in order to rest. And so that's what we need to do as well. If we really, here's the thing, it, it, it may be hard It probably will be hard at first, especially in a world that's going to think you're crazy for taking frequent times of rest, but it's an expression of faith. If we really believe that God designed us for rest and he's given us this gift, then by faith we'll say, I'm going to seek to actually do it, even though it might be a little hard at first, believing that God has my best interest at heart. Now, having said that, there's my practical advice. It's going to take some work. It's going to take faith. you got to make a plan. I know how easy it is to sit out there and listen to the preacher and say, amen, that's good, I like that, and then walk out of here and just get hit in the face with the world, and you don't remember it anymore. You've got to make a plan to have this kind of rest. Now, let me just give you an example now of what that could look like in your life. But just a disclaimer, don't turn this gift of an example into a curse, right? If if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. This may not be the way you find rest. What I hope, though, is it will at least inspire some possibilities. So there's a pastor out in Portland, Oregon. You may or may not have heard of him. His name is John Mark Comer, and he wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And one of the chapters is all about how to practice the Sabbath as a 21st century follower of Jesus. So in that chapter, he gives us a snapshot of what that looks like for him and his family. So let me just read you how he describes it. Just before sunset on Friday, we finish up all our to-do lists and homework and grocery shopping and responsibilities, power down all our devices. We literally put them all in a box and stow it in a closet. Now, I realize I lost a lot of people right there. But if we're honest, we all can admit The scrolling through our phones almost never, ever, ever brings us rest. It drains us and discourages us and depresses us. So they stow it away in a closet. They pick it up from there, and they gather around the table as a family. We open a bottle of wine, light some candles, read a psalm, pray. Then we feast. 
and we basically don't stop feasting for the next 24 hours. It's the Comer way, and I might add the Jesus way. We sleep in Saturday morning, drink coffee, read our Bibles, pray more, spend time together, talk, laugh. In summer, walk to the park, in winter, make a fire. Get lost in good novels on the couch, cuddle, nap, make love, and something happens about halfway through the day, something hard to put language to. It's like my soul catches up to my body, like some deep part of me that got beat up and drowned out by meetings and email and Twitter and relational conflict and the difficulty of life comes back to the surface of my heart. I feel free. And on Saturday evening, when I turn my phone back on and re-enter the modern world, I do so slowly. And wow, does that ever feel good, end quote. Now, I don't know about you, when I read that for the first time, my thought was not, do I really have to keep the Sabbath? My thought was, I really want that kind of Sabbath. I want that kind of rest that brings real satisfaction, real delight, real healing and restoration to me and to those around me so that we have the strength to keep moving forward in this nonstop world of never-ending demands. That's the kind of rest God wants for us. But we've really only begun to scratch the surface of the heart of true Sabbath rest. What we've seen so far is what it shows us about the need of man. We need this kind of regular frequent rest. But now we need to, we need to complete that picture by seeing what Sabbath shows us about the nature of God. And this is going to be our final and, and a little bit shorter big idea today. Sabbath shows us the nature of God. So let's, let's return now to our key verse in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, I'm going to read it one more time here, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So for the first half of this teaching, we, we really focused on the part of that verse that says Sabbath was made for man. But now I want to hone in on the part that says Sabbath was made in other words, this, this human need for rest that's behind Sabbath, that's not just simply a random byproduct of evolutionary biology. It's not just simply another useful tool to be a more productive member of society. It is a gift made by our Creator for His created people. So what I want to do now is pause for a moment and ask ourselves, what does that show us about the nature of this Creator, about the nature of our God, that He would create us for this kind of of rest. Here's the first thing that it teaches us about God. It means God doesn't need us. This is probably one reason why the Sabbath command looms so large in the Ten Commandments. Remember, I told you it's the longest one in the whole Ten Commandments. And remember, these commandments were given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament immediately after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. During that time as slaves, they were literally forced to work all the time more and more to satisfy the never-ending demands of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. They needed the Israelites to produce things for them, to keep their culture and their economy and their way of life going. But the true God, Yahweh, who set them free from slavery in Egypt, does not need that. He is not a demanding taskmaster because he is completely self sufficient. He made the world all by himself. Scripture tells us that he upholds it at every moment by the word of his power, which means that he doesn't need me and he doesn't need you, and therefore he doesn't demand that we work around the clock to produce for him. We can rest because he doesn't need us. That's the first thing we learn about God. The second thing this means is that God wants us. 
Remember everything we just talked about, about true Sabbath. It brings satisfaction and delight and healing and restoration. God made that kind of rest for you, which means He wants you to have it. He actually demands that you have it, which reveals His heart for you. If He wants to give you these good things that you need to thrive, it's not because He needs you. It's because He wants you. That's the second lesson we can learn about the nature of God. But but thirdly, lastly here, when we look at the fact that Sabbath was made by God for man, it ultimately means that God is in charge of the Sabbath. If He made it, then He owns it. And if He owns it, He gets to decide what it means and how we do it. And that brings us finally to Jesus' statement here in this story that really, for His original audience, this would have been the most shocking thing that he said. I mentioned it briefly just a second ago, but now we're going to take a closer look. We're in Mark 2, verse 28. Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, that phrase, the Son of Man, that comes from the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, and Jesus adopted it. If you read throughout the four Gospels, Jesus adopted that phrase as his most favorite way of referring to his own unique identity as the Messiah King. So Jesus is very clearly saying here in verse 28, I am the Lord and Master of the Sabbath. But remember, we just said that since God made the Sabbath, then God is the Lord and Master of the Sabbath. So the question that that would have been, I think, in the original audience's mind is, well, who is it? Is it God or is it Jesus? And I think we can quote Pastor Ryan here by saying the answer is yes, right? It's both. By say, when Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, he is explicitly claiming to be God. He's, he's claiming to be the God who made the Sabbath. He is God come down to us. He is God in the flesh. And as such, that means he has the authority to define the true heart of Sabbath rest. He has the authority to reveal its deepest meaning. And this brings us back to where I told you we would come, to the Apostle Paul's statement in Colossians chapter 2. Remember there he told us the Old Testament day of Sabbath was a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the solid reality, belongs to Christ. Notice he didn't say that the substance will be revealed by or taught by Christ. He says it belongs to Christ. In other words, Jesus is the solid reality that the shadow of Old Testament Sabbath was pointing to, which means this that we don't simply or ultimately anymore find true rest in a 24-hour day. We find true rest in a person, the person of Christ himself. What What that finally means then is that all of those practical ways that we mentioned of finding rest during the first half of this teaching, all of those practical ways are worthless if we don't first find rest in Jesus. Why is that the case? You know, earlier I I made the claim, and I think we all know it intuitively, that we resist rest. But I didn't ask the very obvious question, why do we do that? Why do we so naturally resist rest? Why are we so restless? Most of you are probably familiar with the actor Rain Wilson. Silence. Let me tell you who he is, in case you're not. This illustration may not go well, but we're going to do it anyway. 
Rain Wilson is famous for being the actor that played Dwight Schrute in The Office. If you have never watched The Office, just hop on YouTube for a few minutes and it'll start coming up on your feed because it's very popular on there. Very popular show in its time, I think mid-2000s is when I would put it. He was a very, and still is a very famous actor from that show. Well, he recently did a podcast interview where he described some of his time on the show. I just want to read you what he said there, and I've got a point I'm going to make, so just hang in there with me. Here's what he said. When I was in the office in the TV show, I spent several years really mostly unhappy because it wasn't enough. And I'm realizing now that I'm on a hit show, Emmy nominated every year, making lots of money, working with Steve Carell, Jenna Fisher, John Krasinski, and these amazing writers and incredible directors. I'm on one of the great TV shows. People love it. I wasn't enjoying it. I was thinking about, why am I not a movie star? Why am I not the next Jack Black or the next Will Ferrell? How come I can't have a movie career? Why don't I have this development deal? I was clutching and grasping at, okay, I was making hundreds of thousands. I wanted millions. I was a TV star, but I wanted to be a movie star. And here's how he finishes this. It was never enough. It was never enough. Rain Wilson had had reached the apex of of what we believe will bring us true rest. He had money, he had achievement, he had awards, he had friendships, and we could keep listing, but in his own words, it was never enough. And that's all of us. We work and search and study and invest and build relationships to finally have enough, only to discover at the end that it never really is enough. And the answer of Scripture for why that is the case is because we, we are never at rest with these finite things that we're always grasping at because we were designed to know, love, and worship the infinite God. And that's why St. Augustine in the fourth century so famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That's why Jesus, the, the infinite God, clothed in finite flesh, calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the master of rest because he's the only one who can give us true rest. But we all know that didn't come without a price because left to ourselves, not only do we seek to fill up our lives with things that are never enough, we also know deep down that we ourselves are never enough. We know this. We know we just don't measure up. We fall short over and over and over because we were, we were made to reflect the image of the God who created us And yet we fall short of that all the time. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. They're showing us this picture of what it would look to live like God who made us in His image. But we constantly sin, which is just a fancy word to say we miss the mark of that goal over and over and over. And the end of that way of living is not rest. It is death in more ways than one. It is the constant death of unmet goals unfulfilled dreams, broken relationships, unsatisfied desires. Sooner or later, the physical death of our exhausted bodies and finally the spiritual death of our souls. But Jesus came to save us from these deaths by living and dying in our place. This is what we call the gospel. We talk about it every week because we need it every week. Jesus lived as we should have lived, resting perfectly in his Father's will and love, And then he died as we all deserve to die, finding no rest for his body or for his soul. 
Think about how Jesus spent the last hours of his earthly life. He spent the last night of his earthly life praying in agony while his disciples slept. He was then arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and put on trial before the sun ever came up. And then when morning came, more trials ensued, then a flogging, and then he was made to carry his cross outside the city where he was crucified on it sometime between 9 a.m. and noon. And after hanging there, suspended from nails in the palms of his hands or in his wrists, struggling to breathe with that weight hanging down for at least three hours, finally, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted, he cried out, it is finished. He gave up rest for his body, and he gave up rest for his soul, all so that we could have both. I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team up as we bring things to a close here. When you look at that Lord of the Sabbath hanging on a cross, giving up his rest so that we could have ours, there is really only one appropriate response to him. And Jesus himself, of course, tells us what it is. If you go to Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus tells us how to find true Sabbath rest. And we know that he meant to connect this to the idea of Sabbath because if you finish reading these verses in Matthew 11 and hop over to Matthew 12, you'll find the exact same two stories that we've been looking at today about Sabbath. Here's how we find rest according to Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You will never find rest for your body. You'll never find rest for your mind. You'll never find it for your emotions. You will never find true rest until you find it for the deepest part of who you are. Rest for your soul. And if you want that kind of rest, the invitation is come to Jesus. Simple. You come to him in faith, trusting in him, and in his gentle and lowly heart for you. This is the only place in Scripture where Jesus describes his heart. And out of all the things he could say about his heart is that it's gentle and it's lowly for you. That sounds restful. That sounds like somebody I want to come to. And then he says, learn from me. Learn from me. Learn who you are in Jesus. You find your identity and your value and your worth in Jesus. And and when you do that, what you'll find is that apart from Jesus, you were never ever able to gain enough. You were never able to be enough. But with Jesus and in Jesus, when you come to him, you'll find that he is enough. You will find the satisfaction, delight, healing, and restoration that you were always looking for. And when you find it, then and only then will you be able to find all those things in the other areas of your life too. That is the heart of true Sabbath. True rest was never simply meant to be one day out of a week. God made it to be every day for the rest of eternity. He made Sabbath to be a way of life, and he made it for you. And the invitation again is to come to the Lord of the Sabbath and receive it. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I know there are people in this room that are having a hard time finding rest. 
whether it's physical or mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, worry, anxiety, fear. We all know we need it, but we have the hardest time finding it. My prayer this morning is that your spirit would speak to them and say the same words, that the spirit of Jesus would say the same words that he said here in scripture. Come to me. I made Sabbath for you. I love you and I want you to have it. Come to me and find true rest. Call people to rest this morning, Lord, in all ways, but especially rest for their soul. You are a good God. When I look at Sabbath and what it really means and how it's a gift for us, the only conclusion I can reach is that you are a good God who loves us and wants what's best for us. Help us not to resist this. Help us not to turn it into a curse. Give us the strength and the will and the desire to begin practicing it and ultimately to find our rest in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross on our behalf. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.